This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. It's Mike Fralick here. I feel a bit like a fish out of water. I don't have my uh, Kieran Quinn by my side to help me through the usual routine, but we'll see how today goes. And I'm very happy to be introducing a new guest on the show. It's none other than my brother, Dr. John Fralick. Welcome, John. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Of course. So John's a general internist at Scarborough General and also works at North York General and St. Mike's. So as I usually like to do, we're going to do rapid fire. So uh, four articles rather than two, and we will dive in first with John. John, tell me, what article did you want to talk about first? So first, we're going to be talking an article from the New England Journal published in December of this year. It's looking at angiotensin neprilysin inhibition in acute decompensated heart failure. Sounds great. New England Journal, I've heard of that journal before. So what was the bottom line for this article? Essentially, in hospitalized patients with decompensated heart failure, there was a significant reduction in the BNP and no difference in safety outcomes when comparing Sacubitril Valsartan with Enalapril. Perfect. And for the listeners out there, BNP is um, brain natriuretic peptide. So what was the research question for this study? So we know that in patients with compensated heart failure, that there's some evidence to say that Sacubitril Valsartan is superior, and they wanted to know if the same result might apply in a decompensated heart failure population. All right, makes sense to me. And why is this study important? Well, of course, decompensated heart failure is, you know, a very prevalent issue. It accounts for about a million admissions per year in the United States. Um, as well, we know that for Sacubitril valsartan, in patients with stable symptomatic heart failure, which are those with reduced ejection fractions, it leads to lower risk of death and hospitalization when compared with an ACE inhibitor enalapril. That makes sense to me and definitely an important question. So how did they go about answering this question? So this was a double-blinded, multi-center randomized control trial. They looked at patients who were admitted with acute decompensated heart failure, and this was defined by an ejection fraction of less than 40%, and then they used BNP cutoffs depending on whether or not it was the NT BNP or just regular BNP. They also had to have signs and symptoms of fluid overload. There was a component that patients had to be hemodynamically stable, and by that they meant the blood pressure, systolic, had to be greater than or equal to 100, no increase in the dose of IV diuretics, and no use of IV vasodilation within 24 hours before randomization. Uh, patients were randomized to one of the two arms, and within the Sacubitril valsartan arm, they were dosed based on their blood pressure at presentation. There was also a 36-hour washout period where all patients were given placebo just to minimize any risk of angioedema in those that were already on an ACE inhibitor or ARB. And the doses were titrated over an eight-week period of time. The primary outcome was time average change in the NTBNP from baseline to weeks four and eight, and there were a number of secondary outcomes. Okay, sounds good. So a good old-fashioned double-blind randomized trial. One arm got this new fancy heart failure medication, and the other got good old-fashioned enalapril. So what did the patients look like that entered the trial? So in total, there were 887 patients randomized. You know, they did want to show signs of volume overload. So 62% of patients in particular had peripheral edema. The median systolic blood pressure was 118. The average age was 61, majority of patients men, and 34% had an index diagnosis of heart failure at this presentation. 60% of the patients had been admitted within the previous year. And then at the time of randomization, 93% were on IV Lasix in the emergency department. 11% of the patients required the ICU. And the median length of stay was about 5.2 days. Okay, so a pretty sick group, but also one that I'm sure a lot of us can identify as managing in hospital. All right, so fancy heart failure medication versus enalapril, uh, which one? The main results show that there was a reduction in the NT-proBNP in those patients in the Sacubitril-Valsartan group compared with the enalapril group, both at weeks 4 and weeks 8. The reduction was actually evident as early as week 1 in the trial. 
There were also a number of secondary outcomes, and there was no significant difference in things like renal function, hyperkalemia, and symptomatic hypotension. All right, cool. And any important limitations from this study? Yeah, so about 20% of patients in each treatment group dropped out due to adverse events. The protocol likely led to longer length of stays in hospital. And there was also, I guess, a question about how decompensated these patients were in the sense that they had stable blood pressures. A majority of them were not in the intensive care unit. All right. And uh, take home point for the listeners? Essentially, uh, for those with decompensated heart failure, this medication combination of sacubitril and valsartan does result in reduced BNP compared to enalapril and no significant safety concerns at this point in time. All right. And is this practice changing for you? Or are you going to start uh, handing out this medication next time you're uh, attending at Scarborough General? No, I'm not ready to use this medication yet. I think that the biochemical measures are interesting, but we don't have clinical outcomes that are relevant before I start prescribing this medication. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the most impressive aspect, number one, is that it didn't increase the parent, you know, hyperkalemia, acute kidney injury. That was impressive to me. I'm, you know, really impressed that this got the attention of the New England Journal of Medicine. This is a, a surrogate outcome, and we've seen so many times before where improvements in surrogate outcomes, especially BNP, don't actually result in improved hard endpoints. So there's my editorial comments, but interesting article nonetheless. Mm-hmm. All right, so now on to uh, my first article. It will be a mouthful, Effective Linagliptin versus Placebo on Major Cardiovascular Events in Adults with Type 2 Diabetes with High Cardiovascular and Renal Risk. This was published in the rival journal to the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, JAMA. First off was Rosenstock, and it was published November 2018. So what was the bottom line from this trial, Mike? Uh, Bottom line here is that linagliptin, which is a DPP-4 inhibitor, did not improve cardiovascular or renal outcomes compared to placebo. And why was this important? Yeah, good question. So, you know, some very brief history. As of 2008, the FDA mandated these cardiovascular outcome trials. This was mainly in response to rosiglitazone, where there were some trial data that suggested, hmm, maybe there's an increased risk of cardiac events when you perform the meta-analysis. And FDA said, we probably should have mandated trials that are done after a drug's approved and on the market, we should mandate that a cardiovascular outcome trial has to be performed to ensure that certain diabetes drugs aren't increasing a person's risk of cardiac events. So that's the background here. Okay. And so what was the specific research question they wanted to address? So pretty straightforward, just is linagliptin compared to placebo associated with improved cardiovascular and renal outcomes? And what was the design that they used? So similar to your study, a good old-fashioned double-blind international randomized controlled trial. And this one was placebo-controlled, and it was a non-inferiority study. We've talked about non-inferiority studies before. The upper bound was a bound of 1.3, and you might argue, is that right? Is it wrong? It's a moot point. That's what the FDA has decided is an acceptable upper bound. And it included patients at high cardiovascular risk. So these individuals had a history of heart disease, stroke, peripheral vascular disease, and they had a high risk of renal outcomes, mainly defined by a GFR ranging from 45 to 75, or pretty bad albuminuria. The baseline A1C of included patients had to be between 6.5% to 10%, and the primary outcome here was cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, or non-fatal stroke. Okay, and what did these patients look like? So 7,000 were randomized. The mean age was 66, 80% were Caucasian, 60% were men, baseline A1C of 8%. Most individuals had diabetes for about 15 years. 
70% had coronary artery disease, the average GFR was 55, 60% were on insulin, and we had follow-up on these individuals up to 2.2 years after uh, enrollment. And what were the main results they found? So the main results, again, comparing linagliptin versus placebo for the primary cardiac endpoint showed, you know, right on the bullseye 1.0, aka no improved cardiovascular outcomes or if you want to have a glass half full approach, no increased risk of cardiovascular outcomes. And similarly for renal outcomes, a hazard ratio of 1.04. This drug did reduce hemoglobin A1C, but not by much, by 0.3%. And in terms of adverse events, pretty balanced between the two groups. But I did find it interesting that 30% had one or more hypoglycemic events. But again, you know, same number in the placebo arm. Were there significant limitations in the trial? I mean, you know, we like to be critical and, you know, of course we should be and find um, problems and errors, but this is a pretty well done study. It had a pretty rich patient population. These are the types of people that I look after in hospital. They had pretty hard outcomes. They had good follow-up. I'm looking for limitations, but there really aren't many here. Okay. So what would you say the take-home point is? So the take-home point here is that linagliptin does not improve cardiovascular outcomes or renal outcomes for that matter. So if your goal is to do either, prescribe something else. And will this change your practice? I think so. You know, I think since these cardiovascular outcome trials, we now have pretty good evidence for what improves cardiovascular events and what does not. DPP-4 inhibitors do not improve cardiovascular outcomes. If my goal is to do that, I'm not going to prescribe them. So practice changing for me, yeah, I think it, again, is pushing me away from prescribing DPP-4 inhibitors. Uh, all right, John, so back to you for article number three. What do you have up for us next? So next up is an article published in JAMA Internal Medicine, and it was a systematic review looking at reduced salt intake for heart failure. All right, very uh, timely around the holiday season and, you know, the good old holiday heart where there's much more salt intake than usual. So what was the bottom line for this study? The bottom line is that there's really no good evidence to support reduced salt intake in patients with heart failure. And what was their research question here? So they looked for randomized control trial evidence that supported whether or not clinical recommendations to salt restrict patients with heart failure made sense. So this was a systematic review. Initially, they wanted to do a meta-analysis as well. All right. And for you, why was this important? Well, I think, you know, going through my medical training, knowing that you need to restrict salt in patients with a heart failure was just a very common, almost a dogma in medicine. So I was interested to know what the actual evidence says. We know that there were prior meta-analyses and systematic reviews that showed increased morbidity and mortality with salt restriction in patients with heart failure, but one of these trials was later retracted um, as six of the studies that made up the meta-analysis came from a research group which had some data integrity concerns. Yikes, okay, I, I hadn't realized the backstory on that one, but um, that sounds concerning. So what was the study designed for this study? Uh, so again, this was a systematic review. Uh, they followed the Cochrane Handbook and they planned for a meta-analysis, but unfortunately there was not enough high quality data to complete this. They looked for randomized controlled trials involving patients over the age of 18 with heart failure, and they looked at a number of different sources, uh, the Cochrane Registry, Medline, Embase, uh, and a number of others as well. Studies needed to have recruited outpatients or inpatients with congestive heart failure, and as pretty typical, abstracts were reviewed by two authors and disagreements were resolved by a third. Okay, that all seems to check out. And what was the primary outcome for this study? So the primary outcome was looking at cardiovascular associated mortality all-cause mortality and adverse events, specifically stroke, MI, hyponatremia, and hypernatremia. 
There are also a number of secondary outcomes that were looked at. All right, and you know, how many studies did they come across and uh, how many made it down the gauntlet? So there were over 2,000 references that were reviewed, but essentially only 27 studies were identified as potentially relevant. Of these, only nine studies were used, and that involved 479 patients. These studies included patients from Europe, South America, and North America. Two of the trials looked at inpatients, seven on outpatients. No studies had a low risk of bias. There were significant clinical and methodological heterogeneity across the studies, and in fact, several didn't even provide adequate descriptions on the interventions that were done. As mentioned, there wasn't enough data to do a meta-analysis, but kind of the summary from these studies was that the mean age of patients was between age 54 to 75. Salt restriction really ranged anywhere from 2 grams a day to 7.5 grams a day. And the duration of the studies were as short as 15 days to as long as 6 months. Okay, yeah, up to 7.5 grams a day. I mean, I, maybe in some places that's salt restriction, but that sounds like a pretty healthy amount of salt for the day. And tell us, John, you must be a lover of salt since you didn't even want to weigh in and say that was too much salt. So we know that you like your French fries with extra salt. So what were the main results from this meta-analysis? The main results from this was that there was really no studies that showed significant data to show cardiovascular associated mortality endpoints. There was one study on inpatients, but that did not show any difference in even readmission rates. In the outpatient studies, one study had shown that there might have been lower rates of readmission within salt restriction, but that was not shown conclusively across the other trials as well. Similarly, other outpoints like length of stay, there was no significant difference. There was an inpatient study that looked at changes in heart failure signs and symptoms, but that showed no difference between salt restriction and non-salt restriction. Among the outpatient studies, there were two out of six studies that did favor salt restriction with respect to improvements in clinical signs and symptoms of heart failure. Another study looked at blood pressure targets, but there was no statistically significant reduction in blood pressure among the salt restricted groups. Okay, so you know, despite the fact that you and I were kind of hit over the head with the fact that every patient with heart failure should be salt restricted, you know, inpatient, outpatient, it seems like there isn't a ton of high quality evidence to support that. There really isn't. And I mean, if anything, the main limitation of this is that there's no high quality data that's being used to make these decisions. All right. So take home point for you. I think the take home point is that the decision to salt restrict patients is not supported by high quality evidence. There is a trend that maybe amongst outpatients there could be some benefit, even more limited amongst inpatients. But salt restriction it seems to be associated with minimal health risks, so probably no harm in doing it, but likely won't help. Okay, and practice changing for you? Eye-opening, I think, more than anything. Sure. It does make you just appreciate that sometimes we do things in medicine without a lot of great evidence. It is important to note that there are three trials that are coming down the pipeline. One is called Gourmet HF, another Sodium HF, and another Prohibit Sodium. And these are hoping to address this question with a little more clinical integrity. Yeah, I mean, it seems like an extremely low-hanging fruit, a clinical trial. And, you know, I was aware of this study and just a few weeks ago I was practicing up in Sault Ste. Marie and admitted a person with heart failure and came to the tick box on the in order set, low salt diet, and I gotta admit, I ticked it, but it's like maybe that's not the right thing to do. Maybe it'd be a better idea to let these people eat what they're usually gonna eat at home and titrate their Lasix to that. I would agree. It's probably gonna be more realistic for them discharge planning and get them back home to their usual routine. All right, well, we found out that you have a salty tooth. I definitely have a sweet tooth, so 
back to a diabetes study. This one is dapagliflozin and cardiovascular outcomes in type 2 diabetes, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in November of 2018. First author is Wiviot, and the acronym for the trial is DECLARE. I'm not sure how they came up with that one, but that's what I'll talk about last. Great. So what was the bottom line from this trial? Bottom line, dapagliflozin, which is an SGLT2 inhibitor, did not improve the primary cardiovascular outcome, but it did improve renal outcomes. Okay, so what was the research question that was asked? So just like the last one, this time replace linagliptin with dapagliflozin, and the question was whether or not it was associated with improved cardiovascular outcomes, and as a secondary endpoint, improved renal outcomes. Uh, and so again, why is this an important question to ask? I think, you know, similar to the last, these cardiovascular outcome trials have been a really rich source of information. And if we briefly go through the history of the SGLT2's cardiovascular outcome results, we had Empareg for empagliflozin, which improved cardiovascular outcomes and all-cause mortality. That was an absolute blockbuster. Then we had the Canvas study for canagliflozin or canagliflozin, as some people call it. That showed improved cardiovascular outcomes and potentially all-cause mortality, but with a big but, which was increased risk of amputation as well as fractures. So the, what was the design of this study? So, you know, another straightforward international double-blind placebo-controlled non-inferiority RCT, very similar to the first one I mentioned. What's different? Well, this one allowed patients who had an A1C ranging from 6.5% to 12%. And then in the last study, almost everyone, well, everyone did have established cardiovascular disease. In this study, people had to have multiple risk factors for cardiovascular disease or established cardiovascular disease. And it's important to mention up front that they did amend their protocol partway through the study. They noted that this was before they saw any results, but they changed their primary outcome to have two primary outcomes, one being good old-fashioned non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, and cardiovascular death, and the second primary outcome being cardiovascular death or hospitalization for heart failure. Okay. So what did these patients look like? So 16,000 patients in total, just like the last study, mean age is 64, 80% Caucasian, 60% men, baseline A1C 8%, median diabetes duration of 11 years. But in this group, you know, a less comorbid group, so only 33% had established coronary disease, baseline GFR was 85, 42% were on insulin, and we had 4.2 years of follow-up data for this group. And how were the results? So the results, you know, were kind of underwhelming, I guess. You know, the main primary outcome of MI, stroke, or cardiovascular death, it really showed no difference. So it was non-inferior to placebo, so it wasn't like it was causing harm, but it wasn't causing benefit. So a hazard ratio of 0.93. And then for the second primary outcome, you know, I guess this one was positive, has a ratio of 0.83, and the rate of cardiovascular death or heart failure was 4.9% for people who got dapagliflozin and 5.6% uh, for individuals who got placebo. So, you know, almost a 1% absolute risk reduction. There was definitely a benefit in terms of heart failure when you looked at it by itself, approximately a 30% reduction in the risk of heart failure, and certainly improved renal outcomes. And I should note that the renal outcomes were sustained GFR less than 45, new end-stage renal disease, or death from renal or cardiovascular causes. So for the DAPA group, 4.3% had the renal outcome, and for the placebo group, 5.6. So, you know, over 1% absolute risk reduction. Couple more points, no difference in all-cause mortality, but no difference in amputation or fracture. 
eight-fold increased risk of genital infection for individuals prescribed dapagliflozin, and one of my favorites of DKA, two-fold higher rate of DKA for people who got dapagliflozin. So those were the meat of the results. And were there significant limitations in this trial? Um, I mean, again, an extremely well-conducted, international, double-blind, placebo-controlled study. So let's give credit where credit's due. But certainly, this is a lower baseline risk group than the linagliptin study, and certainly a lower baseline risk group than individuals in the Canvas study in Empereg. So it's hard to compare, and it's hard to know. Maybe if they had a sicker group of individuals, you know, maybe they would have had a positive primary outcome. What would you say the take-home point is from this trial? So take-home point is that dapagliflozin improves renal outcomes, does not improve cardiovascular outcomes, unless we're specifically looking at heart failure and cardiovascular death, but it certainly increases your risk of diabetic ketoacidosis and genital infection. Are you going to be prescribing the medication? I don't think so. You know, my favorite is empagliflozin, and uh, I've prescribed DAPA before, but this study is practice changing for me in that I'm going to keep prescribing empagliflozin. Yeah, I think it's the clear winner in this class of medications, but time will tell if that is the case. Well, we are almost at the end, but of course, before the end of the show is Kieran's favorite part of the show, and I think mine too. It's the good stuff section. So John, what have you been reading about? What's caught your eye? There is a really nice infographic just published in BMJ from this month, and it's looking at use of dual antiplatelets among patients with TIA or minor ischemic stroke. Just nicely shows you what to do for these patients, and that dual antiplatelets for a shorter duration of time is associated with better clinical outcomes. Yeah, I, I agree. It's um, a really impressive infographic, and we'll put the link on the website. And that was actually led by one of my classmates, Reed Semeniuk. So he's behind the rapid reviews that BMJ has been putting out, and you know has really done. A fantastic job and just another example of a really nice one so well done read on that okay so what's my good stuff so of course I lived in the US for a couple of years and definitely while away my Canadian pride only increased and just a great article I came across so what was this article about nothing related to medicine here's what happened a couple in Nova Scotia they went away for the week on vacation they left their door unlocked so that their neighbor could come by and feed their dog and look after the dog and look after the house. And one of the days, the neighbor saw two women entering the house, entering the house with cleaning supplies. The neighbor wasn't sure what was going on. The neighbor eventually decided to call the police. By the time the police got there, the cleaners had already left. The cleaners had realized they went into the wrong home. <laughs> they cleaned the wrong home. They left a note of apology saying, we're sorry that we entered your home and cleaned your house, but not a th single thing was stolen. So, God, you gotta love Canada. Very Canadian story. <laughs> All right, awesome, John. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Hopefully we'll have you again soon. And thanks again for your help with this. Thanks again, guys. Appreciate it. All right. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer Emily Hughes, audio editor Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director Grace Zhao, segment director Shaliza Halani, Host Director Dan Marinescu, Director of Quality and Evaluation Wilson Kwong, and Faculty Mentor and Founder of the Rounds Table Amol Verma. 
Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in.